in less than three days, my youngest son is going to be married. That's a whole new world. Judah and I will feel like we graduated uh, at, at that point, you know. We, our concern level will move to about 60%. And uh, in less than three days, Judah and I will join a team from the Arising Church in Romania to regather and encourage the saints in Romania that have experienced In less than a week, we'll be in Albania seeking a man of peace so that we can begin a generational work. Yeah, this, this, is a, this is a truly important time in our history. And um, since these are amazing and important times, I want to use the time tonight very, very well. Is that all right with you? Sunday morning, we began a series that we called Divine Dimensions. Our first dimension was called Drenched. Being drenched in the blood is the gateway to all divine dimensions. It's how we enter into a heavenly reality. Tonight, in our second divine dimension, our topic will be called drift. Y'all say that out loud for me. Yeah, so I put a picture on the screen to give you an idea. Because when I say to, to drift, I mean, those of you with the Merriam-Webster's in your pocket or an app on your phone or if you still have encyclopedias in your house you'll be thinking of drifting as like moving off a previously determined course Um, or maybe in nautical terms like drifting as in being carried along by a current I wanted I wanted to give you an idea of the kind of sentiment that I'm trying to express this evening, and so we prepared a short video for you right here. I can never really get enough of watching that. And if you would like to see that, then watch the 300 contracting sales staff go to their appointments. <laughs> Look, to, um, to understand what I mean when I say drift, I wrote something here for you uh, to, to help you. I mean to experience the exhilaration of an innate raw power. Coupled with the sensation that you are dangerously out of control. When in reality you are being moved towards an intentional direction that does not necessarily correlate with your steering wheel in any obvious way. See, the beauty about drifting is you're trying to steer this way, but you're actually moving that way. Something is so powerful and so moving that you are gliding against the grain. And it's... It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's enlivening. This is not as modern of a concept as you might think. It was not invented by Japanese youth tweaking their rice burners. In fact, it was perfected by the Hebrew ancients in ways 
that are still being rediscovered today. And tonight we're going to get into that. We're going to begin in Exodus 24 where our topic is and will continue to be drift. Exodus 24 and beginning in verse 8. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. You know, sprinkling is one of those interesting words. Like, I'll I'll take a few little chocolate sprinkles on my Sunday. I, I think it actually brings forward some fairly inappropriate suggestions as opposed to the way that the Hebrew here is used. Because to us, sprinkle can be a small amount. Like, uh, just sprinkle some salt on it. The Hebrew word here actually, according to Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon, means to toss or throw in great volume. So it's not a, a sprinkling. It is a, a, a throwing blood at something. And you can see how we get the idea of spring, Maybe spattering would be a better word. I, I don't know. We'll leave that to the translators. But for the purposes here tonight, I want you to understand that what Moses has just done is you should think of the people drenched in blood, which is what we talked about Sunday. They had sacrifice. They're hearing the word of God, and they are literally covered in the blood of the sacrifice. Now look at verse 9. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Now be honest, if you are not in this church, if you're just sitting around and that's the only sentence you get, and you ask somebody, where do you go up to to see God, what what do you think you would hear? Oh, yeah, I don't think so. To, To be honest, I think you've been in the church long enough that you don't remember what it's like everywhere else. There's not a series on TV called Touched by Jerusalem. You know, it was touched by an angel. We have the idea that to go up to see God, you would have to go up to heaven. Because to us, heaven is somewhere up there and we're down here. And it's always a funny concept because if you're in Australia and you go up and you're in Texas and you go up, you're going really different directions when when you think about it. They went up and saw the God of Israel. As we read this, I want you to engage with the actual text and see where they're going up to. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone, the law and commands I have written for the instruction. From this text in an honest reading, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders were on a mountain in Israel. And there they saw and experienced God's presence. More than that, They ate, drank, and observed that dimension, that heavenly dimension, while on a mountain on earth. I want you to get something. They didn't just feel warm fuzzies like at an altar. They saw with their eyes a pavement like sapphire, a throne like God. They ate and drank in His presence. And where did it occur? A mountain on earth. 
Heaven is not out there somewhere beyond the stellar realm. Actually, the Bible presents heaven as being all around us. And the terms above are to indicate to you that he operates in a dimension that's higher than you, but not in a different locality than you. Being drenched in the blood and focused on the words of God, they help us to perceive a divine dimension that is around us all of the time. These divine dimensions are not far from us. They are actually very near us. In this room right now, there are undoubtedly many spiritual powers that you may not be able to perceive with your eye, but they're no less real simply because you are not perceiving them. In 2 Kings 6, I'm going to begin in verse 9. If you can keep up, great. If not, uh, listen, and I, I rarely lie at this pulpit. I save that for the other churches. I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. If you're hearing that from another church, I'm sure I was honored to be there. 2 Kings 6, 9. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of the passing of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. Do you hear how down is used simply as a direction for somewhere else that's right here? Okay. Uh, it can do with top, topographical elevation. It can be, but, but it does not indicate somewhere uh, that's not down to hell. I mean, not unless you were going somewhere around New Orleans. This is simply a place close that they call down. Uh, We're having fun tonight, aren't we? Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and he tweeted about it all night. I'm kidding. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell us which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Now, Elisha was not a peeper. He, he, was, he, he was not a strange man. Or he was strange, but not strange in that way. Elisha was not in the king's bedroom. Elisha was engaged in divine dimensions that are all around us all of the time. And Psalm 139 literally teaches us that if you went to the highest heavens, God is there. And if you went to the lowest regions, he's there. That there is nowhere that you could go and not run into him. In Acts 17, Paul quotes even a Cretan philosopher and says, In him, him being God, we live and move and have our being. There's nowhere that you can go and not be experiencing him, though most people don't perceive it. It starts with the very breath that you're taking. Right? Which we called respiration or respiriting. <laughs> you, you are literally living in a gift of God and surrounded by His presence. The truth is, there's nowhere you could go on the globe and it be God forsaken or be away from Him. There are just those people on the globe that do not allow Him to work in them while He allows them the privilege to live in Him. 
The God of the divine dimension that is all around us, that envelops us, that is at hand and is about to be revealed, that God, he wants to make his presence and his kingdom and his power very real in your life. He told Elijah things to effect uh, change on earth because God's kingdom is also on earth. And he is manipulating the events of men because of it. In fact, pick up in 13. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send some men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. Sound like the king's a little insecure? They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. See, it's often in times of desperation that the divine dimension is either diminished or defined in your life. But it's no less real regardless of your perception of it. You can say you don't believe and that won't make it any less real. But believing does often define for you things that you might not have noticed earlier. Look at where this verse goes. Verse 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. Elijah said those who are with us, not those who are about to show up. Elijah is walking in the reality of the kingdom and he has a perception of it that goes beyond the man that is standing next to him. Elijah is not hoping to be rescued and carried away. He was not insecure. He was not even afraid because he was very well aware that he was walking in a divine dimension that others were not aware of. Elijah walked in that heavenly reality while he was standing on the earth. See, he didn't have to wait to go somewhere else. He was experiencing it in the here and the now. More than that, look what he does in verse 17. And Elijah prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. I want you to notice in this verse that nothing has arrived. It appeared But it didn't arrive. The divine dimension was already all around them. He didn't open his eyes and see horses and chariots coming. His eyes were opened and they were already there. The only thing that needed to change was the servant's perception. Elijah prayed to open his servant's eyes to the reality, the divine dimension that was already all around him. What do we need our eyes open to this evening. I'm quite sure that while we were worshiping tonight, the angels were joining us in worship and not somewhere afar off right here. I'm also quite sure that in several of the places I visited today, one of them was um, undoubtedly infested with demonic powers. Quite sure. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. We need our eyes open to what is happening around us. Too much our faith has been turned into waiting until we get somewhere when the truth is it's already been established here and you have to live 
and, and grow in that. Let's move to Daniel 3 as we keep picking up our pace. Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. These men are not praying to be rescued from a blazing furnace. They're saying that they will be rescued from the hand of a false king, though. Their eyes were open to the divine realm. Armies, horses, soldiers, even blazing furnaces. They don't diminish the divine realm. They serve as a tool used by God to reveal the divine realm. Nobody will ever see anything supernatural about you if you are not put in situations that go beyond your natural ability to handle. You know what's disconcerting about drifting? It's because you're steering one direction and being moved another. You have that sensation that this is about to get a letter. This is out of control until you round the corner. And then all of a sudden you have that, (laughs) I can't wait to do that again. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And throw them into the blazing furnace. Do you see how the one operating in the natural is always trying to double down on natural strength? I mean, it's exactly the same as the king of Aram. Send the strongest. Send the best. Friends, that's not going to help you at all. You don't understand the divine dimension. It's not impressed with your strength in any way. Verse 21. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers, because they were British, (laughs) turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. The fires of the furnace revealed what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego already knew. They were not alone. See, they already knew that. They were not intimidated because they already knew heaven was with them right there in the king's palace, right then on earth, and the host of heaven were with them. They knew that in advance. This was just a surprise to Nebuchadnezzar. The fourth in the fire doesn't arrive in the story. The fire reveals the divine dimension that the Hebrew children were walking in on earth. See, The fire is not why something showed up. In fact, 
the fourth man was already there. The fire just peels back the layers so that you can see that it was there. It's when we operate in the divine realm that it becomes visible to those that are around us. Now, what, uh, what the armies, the oppositions, and the fires that are in your life, what are they revealing? Because you're blood-drenched sons. And you're called to walk in the divine realm that is breaking into this one, that is enveloping this one, that is supplanting the reality that is all around us. Really, when you come down to it, this is how Jesus introduced the kingdom. When you get to a verse like Matthew 4, 17, you find out that we repent because the kingdom of God is at hand or is enveloping us, or is already here, still coming here, and will be finally established here. But the whole point is, not that His kingdom or heaven is somewhere else, but that it is right here, right now, and you can choose to obey it. You can choose to walk in it. You can choose to see it. You can choose to... Let me pick a a more familiar passage. I mean, I I picked some pretty low-hanging fruit tonight. And, and if you've ever been anywhere where they had a Hanukkah bush with a Christmas star on it, then you've heard this verse. Luke 2 and verse 8. I could have said Kwanzaa, right? Luke 2 and verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields. Anybody want to sing it? No? Good. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Ready, Bonham? Fall on your... No. Okay, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. This angel didn't arrive. He appears. He becomes visible. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't there two seconds before. Let's ask a better question. Did the glory of the Lord arrive? Or did the glory of the Lord just begin to shine in a visible way? Do not the prophets say that the glory of the Lord covers the earth like waters covers the sea? What is What do the heavenly creatures say in the book of Isaiah? Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. The glory didn't arrive. The glory was already there. But suddenly they could see not only an angel, but the glory of the Lord. Oh man, do we need our eyes open tonight. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, this is really interesting because the angel has been sharing the gospel with these men. The angel is sharing with them the words of God. It specifically pertains to Jesus. It it pertains to the word of God becoming flesh. By any stretch uh, of, of understanding, he is proclaiming the gospel to them. Can we say that they're receiving the word? When you receive the word, your perception of the divine begins to grow. Verse 13. Suddenly, somebody say suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared, not arrived, with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace 
to men on whom his favor rests. At first they see an angel and they're hearing the gospel and then they see an angel and the glory of God shining and they're hearing the gospel and then they see all of the heavens hosts, the armies of heaven open to them. Can I tell you your experience can be the same way? You get a glimpse of divine dimensions and you begin to hunger. You begin to read. You begin to study. You begin asking Him. And it's not that anything else arrives. It's that you see more of what is already there. Oh, do you want to walk in the fullness of the kingdom? The angel didn't arrive. He becomes visible. The glory of God didn't arrive. It simply began to visibly shine. The great company of heavenly hosts didn't arrive. They became visible as the shepherds received the word of God. You know, this is very much like, I don't know, a man with his eyes closed. And he enters into a room that he's never been in. That's, that's, I feel like I'm stumbling through this concept like that. Of course, as you hear instructions about divine dimensions, you begin to be able to navigate that room. The room is no more or less real based on your understanding or acceptance. But your awareness aids in your moving about the room. Given enough time, given enough hearing God's word, and your eyes begin to open to things that carnal eyes can't see. You know, the first time that the lights are off and your wife rearranges the furniture, you dent your shins, or at least I do. But I quickly learn where that furniture is. Right? That's not because you can see it. That's because you know that it's there. Knowing where you are in time is called, uh, space and time is proprioception. I mean, this is why a diabetic can't tell what's in his hands. He's got neuropathy. And if he's not looking at it, it doesn't mean it's not there, but he can't feel it. A healthy person can feel what is in his hands and describe a paperclip even though he can't see the paperclip. Come on, if we just got healthy spiritually, how much more would you see and feel? How much more would you know is there? How much more is described in the word that we fall short of experiencing simply because we don't claim our right as drenched sons to walk in divine dimensions? I'd like to show you just how big it can get. Is that okay? Let's go to the book of Revelation. Say there when you get there. Revelation 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Companion in what and what? Suffering and kingdom. Suffering because John was walking Uh, around in and motivated by a divine dimension that caused him to suffer. Others couldn't see it. Others didn't understand him. Others didn't know why he did the things that he did, and they hated him for it. But he understood what he was walking in. He walked in suffering because he was also walking in the kingdom right here and right now. You have to ask yourself a question. Was John's suffering reserved for later or was it right then? 
then why do you think that the kingdom is reserved for later? If the suffering is now, it's because the kingdom is right now. And maybe the reason so many Christians are not suffering any kind of persecution in any way is because they're not actually walking in divine dimensions right now in any way. Jesus' blood was to purchase a priesthood. That priesthood is supposed to walk in divine dimensions. When you walk in divine dimensions, the earth dwellers all around you, they're put off by it for sure. They won't understand what motivates you. They won't understand why you do what you do. They won't understand why your prerogatives have come from a throne of God and why you say your citizenship is somewhere they can't see. In fact, they killed the king of that kingdom. Verse 9, well, let's read verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Verse 9 says John is on Patmos. Now in verse 10, it says he is in the Spirit. You know, there's no contradiction there. You just haven't thought it through. His feet are on, on the ground on the island of Patmos, but he's walking in the divine dimension of the Spirit while he is on a prison island. Tell me I need to go to church to feel closer to the Lord. I say you are the church, if you really are the church. And you should be close to the Lord wherever you are. And if you're not, something's wrong with your perception, not with the Lord. Now, in this passage, look at it carefully. Where did he hear the voice? Anybody? <laughs> Was it from a distant place called heaven? Did, did he hear the voice calling to him from some other planet that uh, a famous evangelist called heaven? No. He heard the voice behind him while he was standing on Patmos, but in a divine dimension. Now, I'm not going to teach on it right now because there's some things I would like to get to to preach on. But Isaiah 30, actually put it on the screen. Isaiah 30, 21. Isaiah 30, 21 has been a revelation for this church for some time. When you walked into the Holy of Holies, when you walked into the, um, I'm sorry, most holy place, when you looked to your right, you would see something, and when you looked to your left, you would be something while you were facing the throne of God. On the left would be the menorah of God, the, the spirit of God. On the right would be a table of His presence, whether to the left or to the right, you would have a spirit that guided you or you would have the word that would guide you and you would be focused at the throne of God. When we learn from Isaiah that when he says whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice where? Behind you saying this is the way, walk in it. We began to understand that Isaiah was envisioning Israel as having access to the Holy of Holies. Now John hears a voice... And the voice is behind him while he's standing on the island of Patmos and it is showing him things to come, whether he looks to the right or the left. He didn't have to go to heaven. Heaven came to him. Heaven is already here. Heaven is a dimension that is divine that we enter into in a way that Hebrew says is a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. The idea that you go up to heaven is uh, problematic because the earth is a sphere. <laughs> I mean, it's problematic for many reasons. 
We go up in the sense that we elevate into a dimension that can't be seen. Are you beginning to feel me now? Okay. It gets clearer than that. Let's go to Revelation 1, 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I turned around to see. Where is he standing? He's on Patmos. He hears a voice behind him and he turns around to look to see the voice that is speaking to him. Does that sound like we're on some other planet somewhere? No, of course not. That is, that is Sunday schoolish. And it's, it's, it's been taught and propagated by people that experienced so little of the divine they had to make up fairy tales. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Somebody say lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Look, John is walking in divine dimensions while he is on a prison island. He is seeing something that you associate with heaven, but he saw it on the Isle of Patmos. He is perceiving details about Jesus that were, are, And always will be true. Whether he perceived them or not. I want you to get something. He is getting a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is not transforming. He is understanding Jesus as Jesus is. He is getting a revelation of a divine dimension. The blood-drenched sons were supposed to walk around with a divine revelation in our hands. That's a part of walking in divine dimensions. Now, as John's eyes were opened, clearly when he says I was in the spirit, what he means is I could see with spiritual eyes. I'm standing on Patmos, but I can see into the divine dimension. I'm I'm in the spirit, (laughs) y'all. And he sees Jesus there. Where did he see Jesus standing? Look at the verse. I'll give you a hint. You shouted it out earlier. No, that's where he heard the voice. Jesus was standing among the lampstands. Do you remember when I said, say lampstands, and everybody said, lampstands? Yeah, why is he asking us to do that? It's never without reason. He's standing among the lampstands. Now pick up in Revelation one twenty. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven, somebody say lampstands, are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands which are churches. See, he is not in heaven somewhere. He is not off in a spiritual safety deposit box somewhere out beyond Pluto if that's still a planet. I mean, y'all are debating it in this generation. To me, it's a planet. It's not some other stellar realm. He is actually moving 
in and out and through the churches that he established. John is on a prison island, but in a moment his eyes are open. He hears a voice behind him and he turns behind him on the island. And he sees Jesus the Christ in glorified form. And he's standing among the lampstands. And then Jesus himself interprets. The lampstands are the churches and I walk among the lampstands. Oh my God, if you could open your eyes, what would you see in this room tonight? (laughs) Jesus, that you would help us to open our eyes tonight. Lord, that the scales would fall off of our eyes tonight. Tonight that we might get a glimpse of what the reality really is, what your divine dimension is like here. Out of that dimension you created the world that we see. You are real and everything around us is still subject to change. Man, man, man. Heaven is not somewhere else. It's all around us right now. It's breaking through. It's enveloping. It's at hand. Jesus is not somewhere else. He is walking among the lampstands of His churches. Churches exactly like this one. Where is your mind? Is your mind on the divine? Or is your mind on the devilish? In divine dimensions or in degradation? See, now that you're beginning to get my drift... I want to go to Hebrews. I want to show you that you can be wildly out of control and totally in his control. And it is an exhilarating thing. We're going to be in Hebrews 11. And I'm going to pick up with you in verse 1. I happen to be reading from the New American Standard for this one. (laughs) Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Man, when you hear that, gained approval. Men of old gained approval, not became a unique class. See, so often we grow up hearing Hebrews 11 is the faith hall of fame. Well, if Jephthah's as good as it gets, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say about that. It'd be bad for Abby. Why do we make them a hall of fame? Because we think of faith as some off-worldly thing, some mystical, spiritual thing that is, that is so far beyond us, only a few in history have ever done it. That is not at all how the book of Hebrews is presenting this subject. Everybody who ever gained God's approval, everybody who was ever gained uh, or commended by God, this is how they did it. Well, shouldn't we know then how they did it? By the way, read the list. You'll find every one of them put somebody to death at some point in their life. You'll find all kind of problems. Some of them got drunk and naked. I mean, all kind of problems in their life. But that's not all that was in their life. Something else was there too. I want to show you this in the Amplified. I have a slide for you for that. The Amplified. Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed 
to the senses. Now, some of you bristled your brow as I was talking to you about heaven not being somewhere far off, but being right here. And yet this verse would seem to tell you that if you do not grasp the reality that is all around us, you are not walking in faith. I know you thought faith was when you came here at eight and somebody gave you a donut and a gift certificate for tithing to their church for the rest of your life. Those people are selling vacuums. Okay, we are talking about entering into an entirely different kind of existence. We're not talking about taking a man and cleaning up his life. We're talking about taking someone who is dead and making them alive in Christ. We're talking about a whole new kind of reality. Now, I'm going to keep referring back to this because you've heard it so long that its familiarity to you has bred a kind of contempt for the original impact that it would have on you. In fact, I would venture to say that 75% of you think you know what it means and have no idea. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to work at that a little bit. One of the first things that we encounter in this, when we say now faith is the assurance. Some of your translations will say assurance. Some will say substance. Some will say the surety. But all of those things fall just a little bit short. I want to give you the Greek word and The first thing that faith is, very first thing, is Strong's number 5287. What really exists under any appearance. I want you to get that. You cannot be walking in faith without being placed under or set under what really exists under any appearance. Reality, essential nature of the world. When you look out and you see a tree and you're like, man, that's real because I can touch it. It was spoken into existence out of the reality we're talking about. God's word was there before the tree was. God's word was there before the atheist was. Everything on the planet was created for him and through him. He is the reality from which everything else flows. Now faith is hypostasis. Faith is knowing There is a reality that exists under what you see right now. How strange that we've made that some far off place like Disney World in the sky. Now faith is hypostasis, the confirmation, the title deed, the reality that exists underneath what you're looking at right now. You want to go further with it? Now, faith is the hypostasis, the reality, if you will, of the things we hope for. The proof of things we do not see. The word for proof, strong 1650, elektros. The manifestation of the truth that of a charge and the results to be reaped. If that is still confusing to you. The reason some translations say conviction and some say proof and some say evidence It is like there was a trial and a verdict was already issued. I don't just know that there is a reality underneath the uh, appearance here. I have tried it, have the evidence, and have rendered my verdict that it is real. See, that's an entirely different thing. But if we're still talking about heaven as somewhere else, if we're still talking about this as some other place then you think what faith is, is, oh man, I know that there is a heaven and and I have evidence that there's a heaven. No, you're still so far from, from what he's talking about. It's unreal. 
It's, it is mind-blowing. The very next word that I want to show you. Pragma. 42.29 Now faith is the hypostasis, the confirmation, the title deed, the reality of the things we hope for. Being the elegchos, the evidence, trial, verdict, proof of the things. Things is not heaven. It's pragma. I have the title deed. I have the evidence of what must be performed, the thing to be done. See, faith is not waiting to go somewhere. Faith is not hoping to inherit something. Faith says, I understand the reality that is beyond or, or underneath all of this. I have tried it. I have weighed it. I have its evidence in my heart. And I know exactly what that divine dimension is demanding that I do. That's what the ancients were commended for. Not raising their hand and praying a pre-formatted prayer and being told that they were a USDA-stamped Christian. They were commended because they perceived what is reality. They tried it. They weighed it. And then that motivated their every action. Not to go somewhere else. To do something here and now. Name men that are in Hebrews 11. You'll find a man like Moses. Yes, Moses, when he perceived the reality of God all around him, set out on a lifelong journey to deliver God's people physically, not go somewhere else. Abraham, same thing. Noah, Noah perceives the reality of God. He weighs it. He tries it. He has the title deed to what must be done. I'm building a boat. The whole world is laughing at me. I'm building a boat (laughs) because I'm on a boat. I want you to wrap your mind around this for a minute. I'm going to read it to you again. These are new concepts and you've been in church most of your life. Now faith is the assurance, the hypostasis, the reality of what can't be seen. The confirmation, the title deed of the things, the pragma, the deeds to be performed that we hope for. Being the proof, the evidence, the trial, the verdict Of the pragma, things we must perform and we do not see. uh, The conviction or evidence of their reality and existence. See, faith is knowing what heaven wants from you right here, right now, and busying your life doing it. Man, the problem with that is, did y'all see in that video how that Mustang was rounding? I, I worked hard to make sure there was not one foreign automobile drifting. Because if drifting is cool, when you do it in an American muscle car, it's supernatural. Did you see that its wheels were coming off of the ground? How out of control. How, what kind of loss, what kind of alarm except it made the corner with no problem and at greater speed than should be able to be done. See, I'm talking about grasping something that goes beyond what your eyes can see, beyond what your ears can hear, what you can measure. And the whole world is taking their soundings, they're taking their measurements, and they operate essentially in what they can understand so they will never operate in the kingdom of God. Drift with me. Straight into Acts 26. Verse 
We're going to experience the exhilaration of innate raw power coupled with the sensation that you are dangerously out of control when in reality you're being moved towards an intentional direction that does not necessarily correlate with your steering wheel in any obvious way. It begins in Acts 26, 32. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he appealed to Caesar. Paul could have avoided everything that was about to happen. But he was walking in the divine dimension. Paul had the title deed to the things that must be done. And because he walked in that reality and he had the evidence of it. And he knew what needed to be done. He didn't care that he could be set free. He had the deed to what he must do in his hands. That's a whole lot different than just being the kind of candied apple Christian that wants to ride horses in heaven. They don't do anything. They just can't wait to go somewhere else. Have you ever heard he's so otherworldly minded he was, he's of no earthly use? Well, that's not Christian. Not even, not even remotely Christian. You, you remember. Uh, we have some guests here tonight. So, LCM, shut up for a minute. If you're a guest here tonight, at some point in your life you were taught to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was never God's will for you to pray to leave. It was never God's will for you to place all of your hope or George Michael kind of queer faith in going somewhere else. Faith is in what you are called to do. And it's been revealed to you by the divine realm. And now it's been tried and weighed. And you cannot help but be possessed of doing it. Now, LCM, you can talk. Do you want to have faith? He had been released from the need to protect, preserve, and profit from his own life. He lived only for the will of God. And that was made a reality to him that day on the road to Damascus when he lost The use of his eyes. How many of you had your eyes open the entire worship service tonight? If you never closed your eyes, not at any point, raise your hand. Not one hand has gone up. See, that's because sometimes what is going on through your natural perception hinders you from entering into the divine dimension that's already here. And you know this instinctually. So you close your eyes. And those of you that are crazy charismatics, like get your uh, antennas up. (laughs) And uh, somewhere between surrender and, and getting your feelers out that you are trying to be more receptive to what was here before you walked in the room. How many of you have been in a state that... That you were being moved by the Lord and you were beginning to perceive, but you heard something and it pulled you out? You saw something and it pulled you out. Okay. Sometimes in the Bible, our senses are lying to us to the extent that you actually see reality as it is better without the use of your eyeballs. Sometimes, without your even uh, apparatus of intelligentsia. (laughs) I mean, sometimes, sometimes you just got to let go to perceive reality as it actually is. 
It's not very sound military judgment to march on Jericho. It's even worse to send spies that don't bring back any military intelligence. It's even worse to decide to bring no weapons to the battle. It's even worse to parade yourself for seven days in full view of their entire army. Unless you have seen into the divine realm here and now, know what he wants to do, have evidence of it, and you operate in faith. That is what the ancients were commended for. That is saving faith. That is the aim of Hebrews 11, which flows right into Hebrews 12 and says so clearly, you throw off everything that hinders you so you can run your race. You are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. They're not in a special class. They're not even gone. God is presently right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they are surrounding us right now. Paul had been told that he would present the new reality of the kingdom before the kings of Gentiles, that he was going as far as all the way to Caesar. He's been told that several times at this point in his life. That is the driving thing that he is demonstrating faith in. I bet it felt a little out of control. They put him in chains. They put him on a ship. He left Caesarea Maritime and he started out across the Mediterranean. Let's pick up in Acts 27, verse 22. While Paul is en route, he's entered into very perilous stages of his journey. There is something that the Bible calls a northeaster, since we're in the Gulf South America. Rather than explain all of that, just think hurricane, okay? The ship's being buffeted. Verse 22. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Somebody says that all. If you're on the ship and you're hearing the ship is destroyed. Does that make you happy? Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as He has told me. His faith is not in going somewhere else. His faith is in what must happen. Deeds that must be performed. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Are you kidding me? He's got to go to Caesar. But he doesn't know the route he has to go to get there. He doesn't know who he'll stop and talk to along the way. He knows what he must perform, but he doesn't know all of the steps along the way. All he can do is cling to the reality of the divine dimension that is all around him. Nobody wants to do it with him. They want to get off the ship. They want to throw the tackle overboard. They want to do anything that they can. But the word from heaven, you must run aground on some island. Somebody say you must. must. What happens if you will not push it to the point that you've run aground? 
What happens if you will not put your life in jeopardy? What happens if you will not get out of control? What happens is you rob yourself of that divine lifting power that takes you further than you could go. Everything this church has ever accomplished, I've been told, was unwise by some worldly wise person, and they were always supposed to be Christians. Most of them related to me. Paul is not unwise. And he's not being veered off course. And he's not just caught in some ocean current as it might look. Paul is caught in the drift with God. He is sliding around a corner and everything in him is saying steer that way while he's going this way. And he realizes because an angel shows up and says, hey, I know it looks bad. There's a hurricane. I know it looks bad that we put ropes under the ship. I know it looks bad that the the ship is being buffeted to the point of being destroyed. And you're going to lose the ship. You must go onto a uh, beach. You must. Nobody in their right mind would ever want that. Unless you were absolutely confident that there was a reality that had swallowed this one. And that he had your deeds mapped out and that it was your job to walk in them. And then what others said was a storm and a shipwreck to you looked like divine providence. When you walk in the divine drift. When you hold on to nothing except the will of God. Storms rage. They try to prevent you from your heaven ordained purpose. That is why the Jordan was at flood stage when it was crossed. That's why the devil is trying to intimidate so many in this room away from achieving heaven's purpose. But by faith, we say it will happen exactly as God said it would happen. All I must do is get in the drift with God. That's what the divine drift looks like. He's out of control. He's going to wreck. If I do, it's because it was divinely ordained and somebody's about to get healed in here. Doesn't look very wise that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king the way they did. Of course, to everybody else, it looked like they were alone and they weren't. It doesn't seem very wise to keep ratting out the king of Aram's plans. Of course, he had armies with him that the king of Aram couldn't see. Why would you go up in the middle of the Arabian desert to have a meal on a mountain? Because it was a place where the divine realm became visible to the elders. Man, what are you missing? Because you only go where you can steer yourself. What are you missing? Because you operate within the limits and limitations. Of what you feel in control doing. Can I tell you I don't feel in control at all. Going to Albania. That's why I'm going. Most everything that we have ever accomplished. Let me, left me with the mind numbing gut wrenching feeling. That I was about to fail in the biggest most public gut-wrenching way and all of those skeptics that have always been there would finally get to point their fingers and I realized something through the years they point their fingers anyway the difference between us and them is we've accomplished something faith always looks like it endangers lives I want you to get that faith looks like it endangers lives 
but it doesn't. It saves them. If Paul was not on this ship, the storm would have come. If Paul was not on this ship, there would have been no intercession. If Paul was not on this ship, they all would have died. Think on the phrase, God has graciously given you the lives of all who drift with you. How can you take those kids to Mexico? What's wrong with you? Well, I'm pretty sure the Mexicans got kids. What's wrong with you? H1N1 will get you. Corona will get you. Man, God will get you right here, you faithless, pew-sitting, pusillanimous, supposed Christian. What happens when you get outside of your own self and you become convinced of what God wants to accomplish through you is you are living in heaven while on earth. And I got to tell you, I love watching that muscle car go around the track, but I'd trade it a hundred thousand times for the feeling that the spirit of the living God is moving through me, working in me. And I can see in the eyes of so many of you, you're in the drift with me. The word is, they must run aground on some island. The drift feels dangerous, but it's exhilarating to be steered by God. Verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and it was 90 feet deep. You get a sense of panic? Well, these are sailors. They're not saints. They sound out the situation. They can only measure, calculate, capitulate. They're carnal, compromised, sight-driven, and sinful. The word was, we must run aground on some island. Can you catch the drift? It's the opposite of the natural senses. It is supernaturally determined. Divine dimensions compel you to drift with God. And they're taking soundings and they're discouraged. The water's getting shallower. Which is exactly what God said would happen. Oh, it's getting so bad. I really, I hope we all just fly away. You've had a book in your hand for thousands of years that tells you that it was going to get bad. The fire always reveals the divine dimension. I mean, it does. It also burns up the bindings that were useless. Oh, man, maybe we should pick up in verse 29. Fearing. That's an important word. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. (laughs) We must go to an island. Drop anchor! Drop anchor! Stop it! Stop it any way possible! They want to be on the ship that saves their life, but they don't want to go through the journey that the man of God is teaching man. You know, well, fear is an enemy. It's got a smooth and velvet tongue is what the song says. It wants you to drop anchor so that you can't get into the divine dimension of drifting with God. You know, when you think about it, there's anchors in the room. They're trying to prevent you from your divine purpose. How can you drift with God while you have anchors dug into earthly thinking and perceptions? 
I believe in the divine. I believe in it. I'll see it. Not while your eyes on your checkbook, you won't. Not while your eyes on your house, you won't. Not while your eye is on everything earthly that you are terrified to lose. Let's talk about a few anchors for a minute that are in this room. Or would you rather me preach about Lakewood or somebody else? I don't mind, and I don't mind that it offends people. I don't mind that it offends people watching. I'm pretty sure that they're going to be offended no matter what we do. I might as well make it fun. I'd like to talk to you about anchors of fear and of failure. Sometimes it causes you even to fail to start something. You ever been so paralyzed that you wouldn't succeed? You thought it was better not even to try? Praise God for the few that answered out loud. The truth is, is I know that that's the case. And it's getting worse generationally. If you can't watch a YouTube video on it in three minutes and master it in four minutes, you just don't do it. Of course, if you're a drenched in the blood, atoned for son, then your life's not yours and that ought not be your choice. Being drenched in the blood is the answer to fear. You're dead already. What do you take from a poor man? So a poor man has no fear. Isn't that what Proverbs 13 says? How how do you gain your life according to Jesus? You lose it. Well, he didn't really mean that. Keep telling yourself that. I can tell you, I've lost everything many times over and I have never felt more rich. I can stand up and preach in a tank top for no other reason than I want to. And there's not anybody that can stop me. I have no image to uphold. I have nothing to maintain. All I have to do is the next right thing that I believe the Lord. Do you know how freeing that is? I am a blood-bought son. That's the answer to your fear. I'd like to talk to you about anchors of self-sufficiency and private pride. Oh, I got this by myself because I'm really scared that I'll fail and you'll see. So I'm going to try to get it right by myself. Private. Nobody will know. Yeah, I'm not going to ask if those are in the room. I could sit here and name 15 names off the top of my head. And you could too. Self-sufficiency. In the kingdom, you're supposed to feel out of control. That's what being in the drift with God is. It's the exact opposite of self-sufficiency. There's no room for private pride because you're on public display. And at any moment, you you know you're going to lose it. It's only the Lord that helps you hold it together. Man, that is exhilaration. That is intoxicating power from God that is directing you beyond the natural. That's proof that you're in a divine dimension. And it's time to act like it. If you have anchors of self-sufficiency and private pride in this room, then you know what you do? You go right to that blood-bought son and you say, Oil, please, right on top of the atonement, empower me. I don't want to depend on self. I don't want to depend on, on my private pride. I want to be empowered. And you know what? You'll find yourself right in the drift with God. Are there anchors of identity theft? In here, let me say it another way. Are you never satisfied with any situation? It's because you don't know who you are. You know, if you got blood bought and then you got empowered by the spirit of holiness, you'd start to find out that you have a whole new identity. 
you'd start to find out that you're a priest. And you'd be happy in any and every situation as long as you got to be a priest. You wouldn't care whether you were well-fed or poor-fed. You, you wouldn't care whether you're well-clothed or not well-clothed. You wouldn't care. You'd be so excited that you were living in your function. You got anchors of self-sufficiency, anchors of private pride, anchors of identity theft in your life. Man, if you work for God, He'll show you who you are. Every situation is a divine dimension if you're drifting in His Spirit. Do you want to drift with God? Then we have to get something straight. It's been an hour and seven minutes and I'm going to close here soon. The cry of every mariner. (laughs) Anchors away! Dig into the earth! Don't let us run ashore! The cry of every person divinely in the drift of God. Away with your anchors. Stop digging into the earth. Stop holding us back. Go with God. Come on, man. Let go of your fear. Let go of your pride. Let go of what holds you back. Go with us. God's graciously given us your lives. But you've got to go with us. And that is... People hear us preach more specifically... They hear me preach and decide I don't like them. Yes, yes, because everybody opens their home and starts ministries and does all that we're doing because they don't like you. No, it's because I know what it is to be in the drift with God and I know it'll save your life. And I know everybody else that tries to get out and save their lives ends up losing it. I, I, I've been watching it for almost 30 years. That's why we speak the way that we do. Don't say anchors away. Say away with your anchors. Verse 30. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow because that'd be okay with everybody, right? Everybody's got their own anchors. We just throw out a few more. My anchor's no better than your anchors. Anchors get you killed, man. God has said where they're going. They're in the drift with God, but only those that know their God are comfortable with the drift. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men, you know, them people over there, stay with the ship, you, you soldiers, can't be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. I'd like to talk to you about that for a minute. I just don't like how militant y'all are. One of those young men told me the how it is and the what for and the this and the that. Yeah, he's a soldier. He's a soldier and he realizes that we all need each other. And he really doesn't care how old you are, how young you are. He knows that if you don't cut those ropes, it costs us all. Well, I just wished it had been an older, more polished person. Then you should have listened when one of your pastors told you. The soldiers weren't willing to lose their lives because of the faithless that were among them. These are soldiers of Rome, but do you know who they're listening to? Paul. You can't make Paul a prisoner in any situation. He's walking in a divine realm. He's in the drift with God. Oh my God, he's going to wreck it. No, I'm not. Watch the next S-curve. You like what I did with the last one? Dragging along a lifeboat, a plan B. You know, if this whole life-changing ministry thing doesn't work out, I'll keep something in reserve. Then you were never really with us. You can't be saved like that. 
That is not the dimension of the divine drift. That's a form of godliness that has no power. It's made up of cowardly accountants, twice dead daughters of Jezebel, and conclaves of old compromised prophets in divisive families. Happens every day in churches. Faith never has a plan B. It burns the ships in the new world. New divine dimensions of the spirit. Faith goes with God and damns the consequences rather than becoming shipwrecked and damned. (laughs) See, this is the reality of the kingdom that you start to get confident of. It's a lot different than your grandmother's Bible study. I know that it is. That's why there's a popular Christianity. And that is why there is something that is despised by the world and loved by God. They have the nerve to call us a cult. Verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Well, it was a good thing it was just them. You notice how Paul is concerned for the lives of the men on the ship? He cares about them. So do you think Paul was sitting back uh, eating some KFC? Or no, what's the new one? The chicken sandwiches from Popeye's? But he's worried about them. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. He's a prisoner on the ship and he's reassuring them because they've never drifted with God before and he's been doing it his whole life. He was a little worried there for a while, but when the angel showed up, he's like, ha ha, I got this. He's driving it like he stole it. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. All together, there were 276 of us on board. Friends, that's a Boeing 747. He's drifting with God. And everybody who listened to him got saved with him. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. We're not going to need it. The angel said we're going to crash and we're on our way. How far do you think we'll get? All the way to the scene of the crash. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw... A bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Now, that's kind of funny, isn't it? They decided, we're not going. We're not going. More anchors. We're not going. Decided to go. Verse 40. Cutting loose the anchors. See, when they could see where they were going, they cut loose the anchors. When they could see it. But remember, we've been talking about something that's all around you that you can't see. I'm going to tell you a secret. When you cut loose the anchors, you start to see things you never saw before. I woke up in my 20s and I was in a prison that I built for myself of debt and responsibility based on all the things that I needed. I just needed them. And they had enslaved my life. I've been getting rid of that kind of stuff ever since. I've never been more free and never owned less. Now, this is not a financial message. If that's what you hear in it, then you're still looking at this the wrong way. 
How do you say you gave your whole life to the Lord while you still have anchors everywhere? While you're still dragging around lifeboats? And if you gave your whole life to the Lord, how much of his kingdom are you seeing? I want to submit to you that if you cut loose anchors today, if you get rid of insecurity, get rid of fear, if you get rid of these things, then you can get in the drift with God and you'd be like Ruth. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Esther, if I die, I die. <laughs> but I, I'm throwing a dinner party. <laughs> Will we be able to afford that? I have no idea, but we are doing it. If it's our last meal, it's going to be a great one. Ruth, Chris, tonight. Actually, it's usually an omelet. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, they untied the ropes that held the rudders. You mean that they have finally decided to quit steering? They've been trying to steer the whole time and had no control. They were caught in the drift with God. They have finally given up, but it's only because they can see the end. Man, blessed are you when you haven't seen and your hands haven't touched and you believe. I'm trying to tell you that you can get in the drift with God. And your life will get where he is calling you to go. Others will say it's storms. Others will say it's going to break apart. They'll say it's terrible. How could you do it? But who knows what happened on Malta. He gets on the island of Malta. And yeah, there's a whole little snake bite problem. Of course, he shakes it off in the fire because he had the title deed to the things that he has to do. And then they bring him to the government officials and he heals them and revival breaks out on Malta and there's still a holiday in Malta today commemorating the day the Apostle Paul landed on that island 2,000 years ago. I want you to get something. All of your anchors are just preventing you from being shipwrecked right into divine destiny. You got to get in the drift with God. We're at a place where I have a single scripture to close with. But before I do, I want to read you one more time the drift. To experience the exhilaration of innate raw power coupled with the sensation that you are dangerously out of control when in reality you are being moved towards an intentional direction that does not necessarily correlate with your steering wheel in any obvious God is aiming your life at something and you need to get in the drift with him. You need to start cutting anchors and you need to get rid of that lifeboat. And as you do it, you may just find yourself on Malta with miracles. Hebrews 6.19 is our closing passage. Drifting with God in divine dimensions demands release. We don't say anchors away. We say away with your anchors because those are earthly anchors. There is only one anchor you're ever allowed to have in your life and it starts right here. Men swear by somebody greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us 
may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. And who has become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You're going to have to cut loose the anchors that are holding you from drifting freely with God. You're certainly going to have to get rid of the lifeboat. There's only one place you're allowed to find security. That's that you can see something in the divine realm. You're being instructed by His Word. And your security is you know what you must do. Most people go their entire lives and have no idea why they're even on the planet. That's why we talk about mezuzahs and family banners. And The night I was born again, I knew why He put me on the planet. And I want that. It's an anchor for your soul. But the very first dimension is, are you blood drenched? Do you never come face to face with the graphic, horrific, bloody death that is the gateway to seeing into divine dimensions? Then of course you don't understand. And you never will. You're standing outside something, describing it, but you're not experiencing it. If you have wrestled with your death in Christ, it's time to wrestle with your empowerment in Christ because he purchased you to make you into something. Priest, every one of you. Priest, they catch my drift. I promise. Would you stand to your feet? Paul kicked against the goads. He wasn't catching the drift. Pharaoh kicked against the plagues. He wasn't catching the drift. For a time, John Mark kicked against the the resistance he was receiving. He wasn't catching the drift. It's a normal thing to revolt from a feeling of loss of control. But it's also the only way that you move forward in the kingdom. I bet that there are anchors that you have to cut loose tonight. Some of them may be big enough to be an actual lifeboat. If you will do that, not only will the divine become more real to you, you will operate in the divine in a more real way fact in the generations to come might be like Malta with Paul you know you can not be important to most people in the world and have made all the difference for one just because you were divinely drifting in their direction and you had nothing holding you back and you just wanted to be used of God take this time to cut your anchors to burn your lifeboats and to get in the drift with God Father we thank you right now We say that we want to drift with you. Lord, we want to be caught in the current of the Spirit. We want to be moved by the wind of the Spirit. Lord, we don't care that there are storms. We don't care that it breaks us apart. We were falling apart anyway. What we care about, Lord, is that you can do something with what lands on the shore.
take us tonight. Take your blood-bought sons and instruct us, Lord, that we might drift with you.